DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Dr. Lillis is an associate professor and the academic dean of St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, California, as well as the academic advisor for the St. Juan Diego House of Priestly Formation for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from his lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. He's the author of several books, including Hidden Mountain Secret Garden, A Theological Contemplation of Prayer. In this series of conversations with Dr. Lillis, we reflect on the writings of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. Her retreat, Heaven and Faith, is the source of our current reflection. Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome back, Anthony. It's great to be with you, Chris. I wanted to make it to the 10th day, but now that it's here, I'm almost sad because I don't want it to end. Well, it has been a delightful time to be with you and to share these things. This ends, though, with a crescendo, a big boom. And really, at the end, the crescendo, the big boom, is just the beginning of something even better. I hope these last couple programs we have together leads people to the place where Elizabeth wanted to lead her sister, and that is, at the end of this retreat, just don't go back to life as normal again. At the end of this retreat, something new has started in your life. A deeper intimacy with the Lord leads you into a a vision of His glory that you carry with you wherever you go. Si shires donum dei. If you knew the gift of God, Christ said one evening to the Samaritan woman. But what is this gift of God, if not himself? And the beloved disciple tells us, He came to his own, and his own did not accept him. St. John the Baptist could still say to many souls these words of reproach. There is one in the midst of you, in you, whom you do not know. If you knew the gift of God. There is one who knew the gift of God. One who did not lose one particle of it. One who was so pure so luminous that she seemed to be the light itself, speculum justitiae, one whose life was so simple, so lost in God that there is hardly anything we can say about it. Virgo Fidelis, that is, faithful virgin, who kept all these things in her heart. She remained so little so recollected in God's presence, in the seclusion of the temple, that she drew down upon herself the delight of the Holy Trinity. Because he has looked upon the lowliness of his servant, henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. The Father Bending down to this beautiful creature who was so unaware of her own beauty, willed that she be the mother in time of him whose father he is in eternity. 
Then the Spirit of Love, who presides over all of God's works, came upon her. The Virgin said her fiat, Behold the servant of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. And the greatest of mysteries was accomplished. By the descent of the word in her, Mary became forever God's prey. It seems to me that the attitude of the Virgin during the months that elapsed between the Annunciation and the Nativity is the model for interior souls, those whom God has chosen to live within, in the depths of the bottomless abyss. In what peace, in what recollection Mary lent herself to everything she did? How even the most trivial things were divinized by her. For through it all, the Virgin remained the adorer of the gift of God. This did not prevent her from spending herself outwardly when it was a matter of charity. The Gospel tells us that Mary went in haste to the mountains of Judea to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Never did the ineffable vision that she contemplated within herself in any way diminish her outward charity. For, a pious author says, if contemplation continues towards praise and towards the eternity of its Lord, it possesses unity and will not lose it. If an order from heaven arrives, contemplation turns towards men, sympathizes with their needs, is inclined towards all their miseries. It must cry and be fruitful. It illuminates like fire, and like it, it burns, absorbs, and devours, lifting up to heaven what it has devoured. And when it has finished its work here below, it rises, burning with its fire, and takes up again the road on high. Beautiful reflection. This idea of the gift of God and the idea of what Elizabeth ponders for interior souls, souls that live in the bottomless abyss, that they should imitate Mary in their inner life I think it's just a, a compelling and wonderful idea. And one of the things it gets at is, I'm sure many of you have heard that people approach prayer like an escapism, a way to get out of my responsibilities in life or avoid problems. And so I kind of hide in my prayer. Elizabeth views prayer just the opposite. If you are open to the gift of God, you're not escaping from anything. Rather, he gives you the strength to face and do everything you need to do. In fact, he not only gives you the strength to do the difficult things, but even the trivial things become moments of his grace. A fun story about Elizabeth has to do with one of her friends was getting a little bit older and didn't have, wasn't engaged, didn't really even have a boyfriend. So everybody in town, all her friends and family were all worried that she wasn't going to get married. Now she's a beautiful young lady, but she just mm -hmm. didn't find the right person. So what does Elizabeth do? From her deathbed, she is writing letters and trying to orchestrate 
a meeting of this young lady with a dashing young man trying to arrange dates for her friends while she's dying. <laughs> well, in, oh, wow. on, on one hand, somebody could say, well, that doesn't sound very pious. It doesn't sound like it's the kind of thing somebody who's a great saint should be doing. But that's the thing about great sanctity. It fills all the ordinary, normal human things with the extraordinary love of God. And this was what Mary did. And how was Mary able to do this after she heard the word of the angel? She was able to do this because she received the word Jesus into herself and it transformed her. It became the animating principle of her life. And so just as she nurtured Jesus in her womb, he became his divinity, his inner life became the inner life of her soul, filled her with a love of God that spilled over into all the other relationships in her life. She began to live the Christian life already. She said yes to Jesus. How does this apply to an interior soul, a soul that wants to draw close to God? What it means is we need to nurture the word in us. Jesus has come into us and we need to welcome the word. We need to embrace the word. We need to protect the word, listen to the word. As we show this hospitality to God who's come to us through Jesus, this gift of God, this gift which is God himself in us, he becomes the animating principle of our life and we become capable of living a life of love just like Mary did. Aren't the reflections on Mary so beautiful? She Mm -hmm. knew Jesus so well. She was so luminous that you could almost mistake her for the light itself. And this is the beauty of Christian holiness. When we draw close to God, when we treasure the gift that we've received of his presence, that living presence which discloses itself to us in so many different mysterious ways, when we say yes to that, our lives become on fire and we become a light for others and we help lead others to the Lord. This is what Mary did. This is what Elizabeth is saying interior souls should do. And it's also true too that that Mary herself, our mother in the faith, she's praying for us. She's a spiritual mother in our lives. She wants us to know her son this way too. Like a good mother, she never gives up on us. She's there and her humble, quiet example in the Gospels is a light for us to follow. Just for the very physical fact that she bore him for nine months in her womb and gave birth to him and then raised him, but in her humility was there to be a source of encouragement, of grace for those who are still struggling, those apostles and all those who would be his followers after he would ascend to heaven. I mean, to be able to go out and proclaim the good news. Yeah, no, she has a beautiful presence in our lives. The people I know who have drawn close to her, who've asked for her intercession and for her protection in their own spiritual life, for her patronage, who've consecrated themselves to her, the spiritual blessing, the fruit is so rich. She has a a kind of humanizing influence. She's a good mom, and she reminds us of what we most need. She gives us good spiritual friends. But most of all, and what Elizabeth is pointing to here, she's such a wonderful example to us. Uh, She shows us the way to have real devotion to Christ. Real devotion to Christ is an escapist. Real devotion to Christ is fully engaged in the difficult things that come up and the trivial things that come up. It's fully engaged because 
it's animated by um, by a friendship love of God all the time. There's one other element here that I want to try to bring out. This is going to be a little bit difficult maybe to understand. Mm-hmm. It's critical today because there's so much mistake around what the spiritual life is. A kind of a, a running polemic I've had through our episodes is that the spiritual life isn't about what we feel or spiritual experiences that we have or try to manufacture. The spiritual life is about clinging to Christ crucified, clinging to him by faith, and drawing from him what we need to live our lives, letting him animate our lives. And this means dying to ourselves, uh, letting go of things, so that we can live for him. This encounter with Christ, this living encounter in which we possess him in our hearts, this is the gift that Elizabeth is talking about in this passage. And the mm-hmm. reason why I want to draw just a little bit of attention to this is our spiritual life, therefore, it's not like a hobby we do on the side that we kind of do this so that we can feel good about ourselves or so that we can look pious because we're trying to impress someone or whatever other reasons that people do. Our society today looks at the spiritual life like that. They look, it looks at the spiritual life. It looks at what we do when we pray has a means to an end. And by that I mean if you have some kind of social agenda or theological agenda or political agenda, you cloak yourself in prayer and religious feelings and language so that you can convince yourself you're right and the people who oppose you are wrong. Mm-hmm. This is a very deep spiritual disease. It is a total poverty to look at God and to look at prayer as a means to an end. God, his presence, is no means to an end. He is the end itself. He is everything. And before him, every agenda must bow and every political endeavor must bend. Before him in adoration, all the fantasies and dreams and thoughts we have must uh, fall down, fall in adoration before his majesty, which is so much more than we can ever imagine. When we approach God humbly, when we listen to his word and we seek to obey it with all our strength, this is when his light comes through. And we're able to see things in our lives through his own resurrected eyes. So that what didn't seem to be possible or a broken situation that seemed like you needed to ignore it or run away from, all of a sudden you're seeing it in a new light. and You see possibilities that didn't seem possible before. This is how Mary looked at her situation. And and I'm going to tease this out, but I invite you to consider this. For through it all, the Virgin remained the adorer of the gift of God. This did not prevent her from spending herself outwardly when it was a matter of charity. The Gospel tells us that Mary went in haste to the mountains of Judea to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Never did the ineffable vision that she contemplated within herself in any way diminish her outward charity. When Mary said yes to the angel, 
and the angel told her about her cousin Elizabeth, it must have crossed Mary's mind that now I'm with child, I'm leaving my betrothed, Joseph, to travel a long ways away to see my cousin Elizabeth. When I come back, I will be showing. Okay. I'm sure this is going to evoke a lot of questions, not only in Nazareth in general, but from my fiancé specifically. It had to have gone through her mind. What's so beautiful about Mary is that some people are so concerned what others think when they go to serve the Lord. They're so concerned about being thought ill of or being thought weird. Mary, if that went through her mind at all, Mary was so trusting and so surrendered, so confident in the Lord. She just knew that no matter what, he was going to work it out. And do you see the difference? When we're kind of manipulative with our spiritual life, we're always trying to grasp for control and we're always trying to make things the way we think they should be so that they feel good for us. Well, our lives are boxed in by anxiety, limited by our own plans and dreams, and really kind of the joy of life, the joy of doing something greater than what my big fat ego wants. It's robbed me. I'm stuck in the prison of my own ego. But when you choose to live this other way, choose to receive the gift of God's presence, choose to say yes to it, choose to be surrendered to it and trust. God, who is mighty, can do all things, can strengthen us for all things. He is always at work doing something new, and all he needs is our trust. It ultimately does come down to that. And the thing that blocks us from that trust is lack of faith. It's fear, uh, essentially, isn't it, Anthony? And the opposite of uh, fear is faith. Mm. And that's the one thing that uh, Elizabeth is just, uh, throughout this entire retreat, has been trying to nurture to help us see into that if the gift of faith is that God's revelation to us, it, from my understanding, is that it's our res- isn't a complete gift until we respond, and that if we there needs to be God reveals we respond. Yeah, it's uh, it's very beautiful to think about what you've just said in terms of uh, our response to the Lord and fear. John Paul II wrote a book during his pontificate called "Crossing the Threshold of Hope." Do you remember that work? I do. I do. Do you remember how it was structured? All the way through the whole book, he tells us about one thing after another that we should not be afraid of. That's the first words that the angel spoke to Mary. Be not afraid. And John Paul II in that book, over and over again, about different life situations and things and movements, he keeps on saying, be not afraid. Be not afraid. Be not afraid. And only at the end of the book does he talk about holy fear. And uh, by holy fear, this is the the kind of love-filled fear with which we approach God, a kind of reverence of heart with which we approach him, which is the beginning of wisdom. It's humble, uh, a humble fear, realizing how great and wonderful the gift is that he's given us, that we're not worthy of it but that he's entrusted it to us anyway, the gift of his very presence. And because that gift is so excelling, so 
beautiful, so exceeding. We have every reason to be confident and not to be afraid of uh, all the other things that might hold us back from him. It seems as though when we are running from that encounter, that presence, that challenge that he'll pose into our hearts to live a Christ-like life, that we do in our own definitions of spirituality, we run from here to there because we're running out of fear. Because is going to cause us some type of suffering that he may allow because he sees as the divine physician what we cannot see. And so he allows the challenge, he allows the struggle so that you can bring it out into the light. At least I, I think that's what I've come to understand throughout all this. I think you're right on and I think you're thinking along with Elizabeth. At the very end she talks about contemplation a contemplation that goes into the apostolate. And she's quoting an author when she says, If contemplation continues towards praise and towards the eternity of its Lord, it possesses unity and will not lose it. If an order from heaven arrives, contemplation turns towards men, sympathizes with their needs, is inclined towards all their miseries. It must cry and be fruitful. It illuminates like fire, and like it, it burns, absorbs, and devours, lifting up to heaven what it has devoured. And when it has finished its work here below, it rises, burning with its fire, and takes up again the road on high. So contemplation means to behold. And what Elizabeth has led us into up to this stage of the retreat is a beholding of Christ crucified, beholding of the gift of God that we receive through the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ where the abyss, our misery, finds its limit in the abyss of God's misery. And so she's saying, when you live in this place, you not only see God and the wonderful gift, but through this gift of God, you see what's going on in the world. You see all the needs. And your own heart is moved by these, need, uh, these needs. It's, it's not moved in the sense that you don't know what to do. You know exactly what to do because you're rooted in God. You feel the promptings of his presence and you can't do anything except act. And when we live like this, animated by Christ Jesus, in this prayerful state where we're aware of God, when we, we live out of recollection rather than our own whims and fancies and this emotional movement and that emotional movement, she says this kind of prayer, this contemplative way of life, illuminates like fire. And like it, it burns, absorbs, and devours, lifting up to heaven, what it has devoured. And what that means is this contemplation, it consumes our, our humanity. We are in a certain way devoured by God. That's a scary thought, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Except that God, Jesus, at the Last Supper, gave himself to us to, that we might devour him. Devour. It's a scary word. It, it suggests that you completely lose yourself. And what we do lose is we 
do lose our, our self-will, and we do lose uh, the way we imagined life ought to be. We do lose our preconceptions and our prejudices and our biases. All those things are lost. We lose our sinfulness. But mm-hmm. when you allow yourself to be devoured by the love of God, when your heart aches with what God aches, and when you're, it aches like God aches for the things he aches, and you give your whole self over, and there seems to be nothing left, that is a beautiful moment of love for which the whole world hungers. The world hungers for people who are willing to love like that. In the teachings of Vatican II, in Gaudium et Spes, it says that man is the kind of creature that he only discovers the truth of who he really is by giving the authentic gift of himself. Elizabeth anticipates this teaching by, quote, talking about offering oneself as prey to the Trinity, being so completely surrendered to the Trinity that you let God do whatever he wants to do. And what she's saying is if you do that, you will lose nothing. Even though it seems like everything is devoured, you will lose nothing. In my own experience, I've prayed with people who were close to death or very, very sick. And some of them struggle to trust God. Some of them are so afraid of death. But every once in a while, you find someone who completely trusts the Lord. I'm thinking of a priest I knew who, he was a crotchety old priest at a parish I worked at, and everybody was a little bit afraid of him. Mm -hmm. But then he got very, very sick. And as he got very, very sick, the Lord took away the things that were causing him to be crotchety. He had a, a great reconciliation with somebody in his life. And then you entered his room, and even though he was physically in much worse shape than he had been in the weeks leading up to to that point that I saw him, because of his communion with God, because he was completely surrendered with God, because he finally surrendered and reconciled with somebody in his life that he needed to reconcile with, he stopped resisting God and he surrendered. Because he let himself be the prey of the Trinity, when you entered that room, there was nothing but love. You could Mm -hmm. breathe it in. And you never wanted to leave that room. You didn't want to leave him. He had the gentle smile and his eyes filled with wisdom. And to receive a blessing from a man like that was, was one of the greatest graces in my life. It was a real blessing. I think what I experienced with that priest is something that God wants us to be with each other. But the only way we can become that for one another as if we're willing to be completely surrendered. Anthony, I wish we had more time. We still have prayer two of day 10 of Heaven and Faith. I'm so looking forward to our next conversation. I am too. You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. To hear and or to download this episode, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, 
We hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis.